This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agencies are carrying out a lot of business these days using cloud computing, and now they have some new guidance for securing cloud applications. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, released minimum security configurations for eight Microsoft 365 services last week. For more on how this could help agencies improve their cybersecurity, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the Security Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft Federal, Steve Fail. Minimum security configurations are another way of saying security baseline. And so when we think about the minimum security configurations published by the federal government, uh, the activity is really in order to encourage greater security baselines and a consistency of execution for security requirements across the federal government. And the products covered here, I think there were eight services, but these are pretty widely used services across government, fair to say? Absolutely. So having various widely used pieces of software with consistent baseline configurations uh, provides the opportunity for common defense, best practices, lessons learned. And so starting, of course, at the top with those services that have the the greatest adoption uh, is a great way to move the needle when you're trying to publish new security baselines, increase the overall security footprint of the federal government, start at the top with the ones that are leveraged most. And, you know, when you look at these security configurations, it provides that common baseline uh, for folks to start out with. Before that these were published, were you finding that customers maybe in, in government were struggling to figure out exactly where they should start in terms of securing these different uh, applications? There's a lot of great work going on by the federal agencies to secure their posture, both on-prem and in the cloud. And for cloud software, uh, fundamentally, the way that software is secured differs from what many agencies were used to securing on-prem software. So removing the ambiguity and saying there are many configuration options, uh, if in doubt, you know, at least do the minimum baseline and you can always move up from there, is a great way to uh, encourage maturity within organizations, knowing this is a well-traveled path, it's been proven, This is something that I can uh, implement with a great amount of certainty within my agency. So giving those agencies air cover in that this is an appropriate level of configuration really helps accelerate the adoption of those changes. There's good awareness for the work that needs to be done, uh, but the more certainty that can be provided, the faster that work goes on. How does what CISA has put out build off of some internal work that you've already maybe been doing? So we're on the front lines of cybersecurity with over 24 trillion security signals being processed per day. And as a result, we're able to quickly identify trends, implement lessons learned at at a global and cloud scale that benefits all of our customers. But beyond that, we also regularly share lessons learned from our own internal zero trust journey. And as consumers of our own service, um, we do have a privileged position to to understand exactly what those security controls are and, and get input on the best way to use them. So we share that regularly with public and private sector organizations alike to help inform their approach. And those insights, especially, uh, they're especially beneficial when working with agencies like CISA. They have authorities across multiple agencies and a broad reach in disseminating best practices across private sector and critical infrastructure. And so anytime that we can uh, share lessons learned and and help them build their baseline based on learnings we've already done, uh, we absolutely jump at that. So CISA is now encouraging agencies to begin adopting these baselines as uh, part of a pilot program. How will Microsoft be involved in helping agencies get to these minimum security baselines? And what are you looking forward to potentially learning as part of this pilot process? 
So we started uh, working on this uh, about a year ago with agency working groups and with CISA um, in support of their, their leadership on this effort. And so we had published uh, documentation and best practices, but really honing those into the unique space that is the US federal government is some work that, that was going on here and that we absolutely supported deeply. Uh, but beyond that, we're committed to helping all government agencies adopt secure configuration baselines being developed in partnership with CISA. So uh, one of the areas that we're helping with that is partnering with CISA on the development of an M365 security baseline assessment tool. And that really brings the capability to evaluate the adoption of those configurations, do so at scale, and do so continuously. And in these projects, one of the most essential things is measuring, enumerating, measuring progress. Uh, so that's an area that we really think we can help is, is not only in providing the, the guidance that helps support best practice configuration, but helping CISA to achieve that, that watermark uh, at scale. And just looking through some of the publications that CISA has put out there, you know, it seems like th this really does come down to configuration and sort of getting your settings right, I guess, for, for lack of a better word. Is this particularly um, advanced type security stuff, or are these baselines truly just come down to configuration and making sure you have, you know, certain boxes checked, certain things that you're monitoring that just about any, uh, you know, IT person in government who is in charge of this type of stuff should be able to do without too much trouble or money or time. So the lift on, on achieving the configurations is relatively low. Uh, and that's why this is really a play for certainty of what are the right configurations, what are the right uh, postures. Some of that's going to vary by environment based on the mission of each agency. Their configuration may be a little bit different, but to have a minimum baseline configuration to know it's okay to be more restrictive, not okay to be less restrictive, that's a, that's a great line in the sand that's drawn. And I think really as we come to uh, the RFC process, as there's been a request for comment on these baselines, uh, that's probably where a lot of the feedback will come in, is around what does that line look like and does it take into account the edge case that my agency has to deal with? And so as we look at broader adoption, broader feedback, there's been a good amount of effort and feedback that's gone into the effort already, but broadening that to all of the scenarios is going to be getting the mix just right for publication. And so I think while these aren't, uh, aren't difficult configurations, uh, some of the capabilities that are being enabled are advanced capabilities. And so uh, while basic in nature of execution, uh, they can have significant impact on the security of an environment. Are there any specific baselines that you think are particularly important for agencies to, to begin adopting, maybe cross-cutting uh, services or, or anything like that? Looking at uh, logging as a starting point, ensuring that you are capturing all of the logs that are required uh, is absolutely essential because that's how you're going to then measure your progress. Uh, that's how you're going to be able to see the, the difference in the change in the baseline. In fact, we find that when we're looking at adversary activity in environments uh, that maybe aren't configured in an optimal configuration versus those that are configured in a zero trust manner, we find that adversary uh, activity may be altogether missing. Um, in those environments. And so starting with telemetry gets enables you to quantify that you have moved the needle in that you are impacting adversary effectiveness, you are better securing your data, and you now have data to show that. Um, so always, you know, those pieces that involve telemetry are a great starting point. Uh, guidance around multi-factor authentication, protection of, of email, uh, pivoting to those things that uh, adversaries are going to use most, those identity attacks, the phishing emails, um, really uh, prioritizing those 
Um, with everything that we do, uh, it's not just a configuration exercise. It's a threat-informed response uh, for Zero Trust, where we're going to uh, be better secured as a result. Steve Fail, Security Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft Federal, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.